Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for investors and business owners looking to save on taxes and build long-term wealth with Toby Mathis, an attorney, author, business owner, and a featured instructor at Anderson's Tax and Asset Protection event held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. All right, guys, you have come to Tax Tuesday. So if you're here for a Tax Tuesday, you're in the right spot. My name is Toby Mathis, and I've got with me Jeff Webb. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Toby. So we're in the middle of tax season. Tomorrow is a major deadline for what? Uh, S-Corps and partnerships? Yes. So have you lost your mind yet? Yes. All right. So Jeff is being <laughs> Jeff is being very... Kind. Is there no screen sharing? Oh, it's screen sharing now. Uh, okay. But you look you look at this CPA guy in this picture, and I, I, I tell you what, I just wasted away from that guy due to taxes. You look good. You're live right now. I mean, that's the thing. Shoot, it's middle of ta- like in tax season. I thought you guys were all supposed to lose it. Hey, man, I do like the beard better. Just saying. So does, so does my girlfriend, and she carries a little more weight. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who you're emulating there, Jeff. I don't know. Hey, uh, anyway, so Elliot's on with us. <laughs> we don't have a lot of tax people today just because they're all losing their minds. So it's Elliot, Dana. Uh, who else do we have? Troy. And I think that's it. So you're going to have some people answering your questions. Just know that Usually we're just knocking them out today. We're about half staff just because so many people are working on final returns. I don't want to take them away from that. Today should be fun today. Well, I mean, tax Tuesdays are always fun. So should we that. Hey, Mr. C, you should be here in Orlando. Sherry, I am just about two hours away from you in Tampa and I should be in Orlando, but we like Tampa. We like the water. Is Disney or water? Disney, water, water. I love Disney, but. Anyway, so it's good. Tampa is where we live now. Shoot, I, I should have come and seen you. <laughs> All right, Tax Tuesday rules. Ask questions live via the, the Q&A feature in Zoom, so don't use chat for everything live. If you have questions, you could send them in to taxtuesdayandersonadvisors.com. So here's the deal. If you do not get a question answered today because we're jamming through them, we always get hundreds, and so hopefully our guys are able to get through them. But if you can't, by all means, email it. Uh, If you need a detailed response, like you're saying, hey, my tax situation is this, and you're looking for advice on it rather than the issue, like, can I write off a house if I had it for whatever? If you're being very specific to you, then we need you to be a a client so we can give you an appropriate response. We can make sure that we have the compliance handled. This is fast, fun, and education. We want to give back and help educate. But if you just have a question like, hey, what's the deal with this? Or, hey, am I able to write this off? Or, hey, by all means, just ask away. And if I ask you guys a question like, hey, where are you sitting right now? There's a good question. In fact, I'll ask it. Hey, where are you sitting right now? What city and state? You can just put it in chat. You don't have to do the uh, the question and answer. Go right into chat and by all means, put it in there. So that was a question. Austin, Parkland, Florida, Seattle, Washington. Hey, Scott. Hobbs, Newport, Rhode Island, Honolulu, Richmond, Florida, Fremont, California, Sunnyvale, California, Anacortes, where my mom lives, Pembroke Pines, Houston, Almeida, Dallas, League City, Rhode Island. Now I'm getting blown away. See, oops, Southern Oregon Coast, Clearwater. I'm in Clearwater, John. See, 
I'm uh, hanging out here, trying my best to get a tan. Dana Point, DC traffic, boom, you win. Uh, Baltimore County, got some houses there. Delaware, Minnesota, Minnesota, uh, Virginia. We got people from all over the place. Jeff, we always, whenever I ask that question, and I, I like I'm just getting pelted now. You guys are coming through too fast. I don't even know how many people are on, but it's usually lots, hundreds of people. We have 10,000 people that register for these. And then a lot of you guys listen to them. A lot of you guys watch it. So now you're making it. You're making my chat screen go nuts. It starts to blur. All right. So let's uh, jump on. We'll keep going through. So we have lots and lots of questions. I'm going to try to read them. I have to apologize because I'm going to be reading them off of the screen. I'm not used to reading them off. But here's the questions we're going to go through today. How to set up a home office under a corporation LLC. That's a great question, by the way, because there's about three or four things that are being triggered there. What should I do now after I made the mistake of starting an LLC in California? It's a three-letter word and starts with an R and ends with an N. Is it advisable to have your house you live in under an LLC? We'll talk about that and what the rules are. What are the requirements to count visiting out-of-state properties that you own as a deduction, such as airplane tickets, car rental, hotel meals, et cetera? What are the, the minimum requirements to account it as a tax deduction, not as a personal expense? Great questions thus far. What's the best way to set up a JV partnership when I already own 100% of the LLC used to get the property under contract? How can I become anonymous in my LLC after the fact? I started my own LLC with my name all over it. And one year later, I'm interested in enhancing the corporate shield and getting my name off the record. Is that possible? I have worked hard to build the business credit with the existing entity and would like it to continue. In 2021, we sold my husband's dental practice and will owe substantial capital gains taxes. Is there any possible way to avoid these taxes through real estate investing or dot, dot, dot? Uh, when do I switch from wholesaling under my name to wholesaling as a corporation? How do I get credit approvals under a business entity? So I'm assuming you're talking about business credit. Is it more advantageous from a tax saving standpoint to make charitable contributions directly from our corporation or to pay ourselves and then make the donation from our personal account? Can I do a 1031 exchange when I sell an investment home that I've never lived in or rented out? Is there any way to avoid capital gains tax other than renting it out? I don't want to keep the house. Who handles the paperwork for a 1031 exchange? The lawyer, the realtor, my tax advisor. How far in advance do I have to plan to undertake an exchange? And by the way, those are separate people. They happen to be like one, two, like boom, boom. So I took these ones actually in order off of a second section. So I just thought that was interesting. You know, the 1031 exchange questions are about one out of every 200. And they were like side by side. So I, I felt compelled to take them. A Florida LLC with members consisting of my wife and three of my children made a profit of 65000 on a residential flip in March. Way to go. My wife does not have taxable income. Would the profit be protected from tax if it was paid out in full to my wife? Good question. What is more beneficial to claim or employ dependents? What are the requirements for employing dependents? So lots of good questions. And we'll start right out with how to set up a home office under a corporation or LLC. What say you, Jeff? I say my brain's tired. So anything I say could be wrong. I, uh, generally, it, it's going to depend on what the entity is. If it's a corporation or a uh, S corporation, you want to set it up as an administrative office for that entity where you're being reimbursed for 
the expenses of using that office. That's going to be, uh, you've heard us talk about home office where it's, it's that portion of the property that you're using mm-hmm. for the business. If it's an LLC that's taxed as a Schedule C self-employment, you're going to have to do it as a home office. It's slightly different. You're going to claim depreciation on it. Whereas with the reimbursement, you can be reimbursed for depre- uh, depreciation, but you're not actually taking the depreciation. And it does matter in the long run. Uh, partnership, I believe they have to do the same way. I mean, what's your view on partnerships that want to do an administrative office? You can't be an employee of your own partnership. So you're a partner. So no administrative office. It would be a home office. Uh, and the reason this is important, guys, is what Jeff's talking about is whether you have to file the special home office form that you have to recapture in certain cases, the depreciation. It sucks. It's like $5 a square foot for the square footage of the room. That's the safe haven. Or you can do a percentage of the gross square footage. The rules are so much easier and so much more beneficial to you if you are an administrative office mm-hmm. and your employer is reimbursing you. And this is really important. To be an employer, it needs to be an S-corp or a C-corp for tax purposes. So when you see an LLC up there, LLCs do not exist to the IRS. They do not care about it. They do not have an LLC tax form. For an LLC, you tell the corporation, here's how I'm going to treat it from a tax standpoint. It could be either ignore the thing. It's a partnership. It's an S-corp. It's a C-corp. That's really it. So uh, and it starts with the C-corp. Then you have to file an extra form for the S-corp. So really what we're talking about when it's one person, it's disregarded or C-corp. If it's two people, it's partnership or C-corp. And then once you go to the C-corp, then you could make an S election. So um, the S and the C-corp tax form is what you want to be on. And it's not even called a home office. It's called an administrative office. And what it does is it unlocks your ability to A, deduct any mileage that you take between two offices or when you're going out on business. So normally, if you commute to an office place, you can't write it off. When you have an administrative administrative office in the home, you can. So for example, a real estate agent who has an office, normally you wouldn't be able to deduct just driving over to that office. But if you have an administrative office in your home and an office where you go meet clients and things like that, absolutely, you can do it. So uh, then you're able to write off the, 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 the mileage. And then like Jeff said, you get to reimburse somebody yourself from the business depreciation on your house without having to recapture it. It's actually really good. And you don't have to report it anywhere. So when you're getting a reimbursement from an employer, just pretend your employer said, hey, hey Jeff, pick up a pizza on in here. When you're coming in, we'll, we'll feed the office. And Jeff picks up a hundred bucks worth of pizzas and I throw him a, $100 cash, he doesn't have to report that anywhere. Me, as the employer, I have to report it as an expense. That's it. So that that's what we love. We love accountable plans where you're reimbursing an employee because there's no paper trail to the employee and it's so great for the business. And so uh, you get the best of both worlds, including when you're an administrative office for the home, you can use net square footage or you could use the room methodology where you're just writing off a percentage of the house based off of how many rooms it has. So what I see is that it's usually 15 to 20% of all your expenses, including your real estate taxes and mortgage interest and all those things, you could reimburse. And it ends up being really, really great for you. That makes sense, Jeff? Yep. All right. Did I say anything goofy? No. Uh, yeah, the only one th- thing I want to add on to that is, uh, 
you want to document if you're reimbursing yourself from your corporation or escort, you just want to document how you're coming up with that reimbursement. Yeah. When we do it, especially under 280A, we have a methodology, but I use a spreadsheet. Our guys, Jeff, Jeff's team's really good at this. You'll, you'll have a methodology. When you do a reimbursement, it's based on your actual expenses. So you add up things like, hey, do I have a housekeeper? Great, I'm going to add that up. Hey, do I have utilities? Yeah, I'm going to add all that up. Do I have real estate taxes? Yep. Do I have real estate insurance or do I have a homeowner's insurance? Yep. I'm going to add everything up. Did I pay a mortgage interest? Yep. Real estate taxes? Yep. And I add them all up. And if it's 20%, like, you know, let's say you had a three bedroom home, you're probably going to get one fifth. So you're going to get 20%. You can reimburse 20% of all those expenses. And it works out great. We love that. All right. So great question for number one, right out the gate, Jeff, you're on fire. You're already like, you're knocking it out of the park. Just let me throw you a curveball. What should I do now after I made the mistake of starting an LLC in California? When I saw this one, my first thought was, why was it a mistake? I'm assuming that you're transacting some type of business in California. So if it was mistaken, it shouldn't have been in California. Not the only thing you can do is dissolve that LLC or can you, how, how, now you're going to know more about this than I do, Toby. What about moving that LLC out of the state? Is that possible? Yeah. So depending on where you're moving to, you can, they call it a conversion. You can convert it to a new jurisdiction. A lot of them, the way they convert is you file a new entity in the new state and then you dissolve the old state. As you remember that, that there's the, there's always, there's three things. I always call it the trilogy. There's the state. There's third parties like banks and stuff. They want to see your bylaws and all that stuff. And then you have the feds. The feds are separate from the state, as we know. So like your federal tax EIN won't change, but the state you just moved. Kind of like your social security number doesn't switch if you move from Nevada to Texas, right? So if you were in California, and I assume you're saying it's a mistake because you have the franchise tax. Uh, Jeff's absolutely right. Like, let's say that I have California real estate and I put it in California LLC. You may be feeling bummed, but that's not the wrong way to do it. That's the right way to do it if you're using an LLC. If you use a Wyoming statutory trust, you might be able to get away from the 800. But even with the Wyoming statutory trust, we're going to have an LLC owning it or being the beneficiary, and that's going to be taxable in California. So it's not necessarily that you did anything bad. California just charges you up the nose for an LLC. If you set up an LLC in California for a business that does interstate commerce or does business in other states and doesn't do anything in California, all right, now we may want to be talking about whether we want to use a corporation out of the state. And don't worry, it, it's something that we do deal with every day. Worst case scenario is you can always dissolve an entity, file a final return with, with, with uh, California. You're going to get hit with the 800 bucks and set up the, the correct entity in the appropriate state. But like Jeff said, there's what you can convert quite often. Like we convert, we can convert into Wyoming. And then you're, you're doing the same thing. You're still paying your 800 bucks for the one year, but you're filing it as a final return. Anything else on that one? Nope. That's an interesting question. And one that, you know, California is just extremely difficult to you guys. The sad part is they're not even the worst used to think they were. Hey, if you like learning about entities, you want to learn more. So trusts, LLCs, corporations, the appropriate way to set them up, how to use a smoke screen, how to do everything from equity stripping, uh, equity stripping to using land trusts and living trusts. We get into some of the weeds, but it's, it's, it's a nice, 
you know, probably not a 10,000 foot view, but we probably get down to about 1500 to a thousand feet. We're not going to dive into the minutia, but we're going to show you exactly what these things are and how to use them. Clint does an excellent, uh, an excellent job. He handles most of the heavy lifting. I come in to do tax and legacy planning on September 18th, between nine and five, uh, which is really nine to four. We always give ourselves a little wiggle room there. Uh, it is absolutely free, absolutely free. So for you guys, we love our tax Tuesday folks. You come on in, you're going to learn all sorts of fun stuff from tax reduction to liability reduction, how to actually own things and keep your name out of a public record. You're going to see some of the questions in here today talk about that. One of the best things you could do to never get sued is if they can't find it. So uh, we like that. Business structuring, how to use the different uh, businesses, how they work, how they how, how it doesn't work, how to create legacies. I love the 200, 300 year plan. And it changes our methodology of thinking so much. And it's not that expensive. It's actually cheaper than the alternative of doing nothing or doing a will. Uh, retirement strategies, we do get into some of the use of the 401ks and how to use them and maximize them and also touch base on the DB plans where you can put in some cases, we have clients putting seven, $800,000 a year into a retirement plan. And many people don't even know they exist. Uh, and then asset protection. Asset protection is about preservation of the asset, protecting it from creditors, protecting your liability, you creating liability and protecting the, the business from that too. So for example, uh, I've seen this way too often, unfortunately, but you know, somebody is running a professional business, they have their business, they have multiple kids, one of those kids get into a car accident, depending on how severe we've seen, you know, wrong, we've seen deaths and things like that. You want to make sure that you have a good layer of protection. We go over the different layers, everything from insurance to making sure that they can't take things away without you willingly handing it over. So sometimes they can take away the uh, the profits interest in a company, but we want to make sure that they can never take over the management or control it. And what that does is it for its settlement. So, you know, we kind of look at it as six events in one. There's a lot that we go over and it's absolutely free for y'all. So it's aba.link forward slash tax and asset protection. It's this coming up Saturday. Clint and I teach it. A lot of fun. You won't be bored. And trust me, you're going to learn a ton of things that you didn't already know. Clint does an excellent job and I do an okay job. Together, we do a great job. And uh, it's a lot of fun. All right. Back into the questions. Is it advisable to have the house you live in under an LLC? I put the N in there just to make it make sense. In LLC. What do you say, Jeff? I know this isn't your bailiwick. I can see either A or N being correct. Oh, that wasn't your question, though, was it? Um, I prefer not to do this, uh, having my house in an LLC. I might be wrong about this, but I, I think it causes some issues, perhaps not with the 121 gain exclusion, but I think there's also issues with uh, homesteading. Is that correct? Uh, you have some homestead, yeah. In some states like Texas, Florida, we have to be careful because if you put it in the LLC, you you could destroy an unlimited homestead. So I don't like using LLCs in an unlimited homestead state, first off. But I also look at the state and see, do you have any equity exposed? So like in Nevada, it's 575, I believe, is, is what we're at sitting at now. So if you have a house that's worth 500 grand, what are you worried about? Some people say, well, I want to put it in there because I'm going to give pieces of it away to my kid. Stop that. Don't do that. Right. Don't don't gift a capital asset yet, because the law right now is you get a step up in basis when you pass away. So like you're giving away tax deductions, plus you may want to sell it at some point. The 121 exclusion, which is the 200,000 
and $500,000 capital gain exclusion when you sell a home that you've lived in two out of five years, that does not matter. As long as that LLC is a disregarded LLC, it doesn't hurt it. Uh, Also land trusts. uh, And I'll tell you what our personal view, land trusts don't affect the 121 exclusion. My personal view is that you get way more bang out of your buck if you have a trust own your home and just make it some goofy name. And if you really want to use a nominee trustee or use an LLC that's doing nothing else as the trustee, and it'll keep your name out of the public record. So for example, I could set up a Wyoming LLC. My name's nowhere on it. I could call it, you know, Blue Dog LLC. And, uh, and I could set up a trust on my home, the 123 Main Street Trust by its trustee, Blue Dog. My name's nowhere on it. Nobody can come find it. And it's been fairly well protected, but for tax purposes, that whole thing is completely ignored. Doesn't hurt my 121 exclusion, does not hurt uh, my homestead. So I tend to like those. The other thing is make sure you have good insurance. If you are doing Airbnb, make sure you talk to your insurance agent and that you are getting a a commercial policy. You have to for the short-term stuff. Otherwise, they will not cover. And then also make sure you have a cheap umbrella coverage. Umbrella coverage, a good policy is going to cost you around 300 bucks a year. And it's lawyer coverage. What it means is it's not going to protect you from all lawyers, but it's going to give you a lawyer that you don't have to pay for to defend you under most cases. And that's almost more important because what what gets most people in litigation is the slow drain on resources, the drain on time, and the drain on your nerves because you start waking up at 3 a.m. wanting to punch somebody. So you got to make sure that you have some layers of protection in place. And uh, nowhere is that more important than if somebody's coming after your house. I have seen an individual lose their home after years and years and years of running their business because their homestead exclusion sucked. Like in California, your guys' homestead exclusion sucked. She had nothing, nothing. She had two lawyers. She had a lawyer, a full-time lawyer and an accountant, and nobody saw the issue. And she had one liability occurrence on one property and they took over 15 properties, including her house. And boom, she was done. So somebody says, is the ABA.link the tax and asset protection? That is a virtual event, guys. We're not going to be doing that one live but it will be all day. Anyway, do you have anything else? I just hobarted. No, I was just wondering how you feel about the QPERTS, the Qualified Principal Residence. Yeah, the Qualified Personal Residence Trust, where you just own the uh, the right to occupy. It's very rare that I would recommend it. Let's just put it that way. Uh, you can always replace the home. like So like, hey, I'm going to give this to somebody. It doesn't give me any control over the asset. I could I could swap it out like, hey, I could buy another residence inside that same residence, but uh, I always think it's a little bit of overkill. There's very few situations where I'd use a Cupert. Things happen and you might want to change your mind or you may want to use that uh, that, that asset. And depending on how, who drafted it, you could be at, a, at, at uh, severe limitations as to what you can do to access those funds, just in case something unexpected occurs. So I like control. Mm-hmm. And I don't like giving away control. So, oh, what are the, this is, this is one that's all for you. What are, what are the requirements to count visiting out-of-state properties that I own as a deduction, such as airplane ticket, car rental, hotel meals, et cetera? What are the minimum requirements to count it as a tax deduction and not a personal expense? Let's say you, Jeff. The primary thing is we have to make this a, we have to make this business travel. And to do so, there is the requirement that at least half the time spent 
traveling, say you go for a week to check out your properties in another state, uh, at least half that time. So uh, if you're gone for six days, at least three of those days have to be business related. And a business day is considered at least four hours of business during the day. So if you meet those requirements, you're going to be able to count the entire thing as business travel. So what you don't want to do is go visit your property in Orlando for one day and then spend the next six days at uh, Disney World and Epcot and all, because then at that point, none of it becomes business travel. Yeah. So, Jeff, you put it really, really well. It's documenting the purpose of the trip, and it just has to be primarily for business versus vacation. And how do you make it primarily? You have to be 50% or greater than 50%. So four hours in one day, if you're meeting on a daily basis, spending it on your properties, which means you're there, you're working around your properties, you're talking to vendors of your properties. Uh, If you're a real estate investor, you're looking at other properties, like you're doing things that are associated with your business. So, you know, that's not horrifically difficult to do (laughs) because you could be, you could literally have breakfast with somebody for about half of that that you're working with, you know, Hey, I'm going to take the vendor out and I'm going to talk to my real estate agent and I'm going to do this and that and the others. Like it's, it's not horrible, but the way the IRS does this, they have a couple little tricky rules. Like they can say, Hey, if, if I'm in the North American region, if I fly to meet with Jeff or if I meet with him at my place, let, let's say that I had, I have the ability to hire a CPA next to my office, or I could hire Jeff across country. Let's say I lived in Washington and Jeff was in New York. The IRS can't say, hey, you have to use the guy that's closest. So I could fly out to meet with Jeff in New York, and that's no different than if I went next door. And then I can write off my reasonable travel expenses, as long as the reason I went to travel was to see Jeff. So the way that they dictate that is more than 50% has to be Jeff. And those are days. So if a day is four hours, plus I have my travel day there and back, I have three days already. So I could spend an extra day there. I could spend an extra two days potentially. But uh, what we like to see is when when you're using the rules in your favor, not just the travel expense, but that you're going to have as many business days as possible. And you're able, you're able to combine a little bit of pleasure with business. And the way you do that is by splitting a weekend. So let's say that I fly on a Thursday, I meet with Jeff on a Friday, I should meet with Jeff or at least another vendor on Monday, and then I should fly on Tuesday. What that gives me is Monday and Tuesday and Thursday and, and, and excuse me, Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, all those business days. But also it gives me the two days in between those because it's on a weekend. I get those as business days. If it's a holiday, you get that as a business day too. You just have to bookend it. So if I if you're willing to do it, you know, like spend a little bit of time and learn this stuff, it's going to be a huge benefit to you. Cause you know, again, if I wanted to go visit Jeff said at Orlando, then I just have to go to someplace for Orlando for Thursday, Friday, or Friday at least, and then have another meeting on Monday. And that will allow me to capture that whole weekend. But better yet, that gives me six, just count them, six business days right out the gate. I have Thursday for flying, Friday for the meeting, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, because they're split weekends, I get those as business days. And then Tuesday uh, as another fly day. So I have six days. So I could literally stay another five days and still ride off the plane tickets. I would have to split the hotel though, like because the hotel would only be for the business days. 
the other business, those other days, the uh, meals and hotel would not be covered. So didn't mean to get too deep on that. The other thing is uh, meals right now are 100% if you're doing it at a restaurant. That was under the Consolidated Services Act that was passed at the end of last year. So make sure that you're taking advantage of that. Next one. Oh, we don't really need to do the Q&A because these guys are knocking through. Let me just see how bad it is right now. You guys always ask a million questions, and I'm scrolling through pages and pages of questions. Holy kashmoly. Oh, that's the chat. No wonder. I was like, Jiminy Christmas. Did they even answer a question? No, I'm just teasing. Answer. Oh, yeah. They're still learning. They got 14 questions in the queue. You guys are keeping up. So Dana and Elliot, you guys get a star. And Troy, you guys get a big star. Anybody else that I see on there? Troy, Elliot, Dana. Like, you guys are just doing great. And Patty's there. Okay, I see that. Perfect. You guys keep it up. Jeff, what's the best way to set up a JV partnership when I already own 100% of the LLC to get the property under contract? This one actually confused me a little bit because I felt I was a little short of information. But what I kind of put together was this sounds like maybe they, they're buying a property and want to partner with a either a developer or somebody to gap fund them or something to maybe flip the property. And, and if that's the case, that LLC can be contributed to the joint venture, uh, which is going to be taxed as a partnership. And then whatever the other person in the joint venture contributes uh, will also be their share. So I would just put that entire LLC inside this partnership, inside the joint venture. What if you just wanted to bring them in as a 50% partner? Hey, I got the property under contract, Jeff. We're going to do 50-50 on this. You know, you're the construction guy, Jeff. I bought, I put a property on, let's just say I put a property under contract. I put 50,000 down. I got a $200,000 property and we're going to spend another 50 to fix it up. Uh, yeah, you, you could admit another member. Uh, you will have to file what's called Form 8832. What you were talking about earlier, Toby, that lets you designate how your LLC is going to be taxed. Mm-hmm. And you're simply telling the IRS that, hey, I was a single member LLC, but now I want to be taxed as a partnership mm-hmm. because there's two of us. But yeah, you could certainly do that. Yeah. And if you do that, here's here's my caveat. Make sure that you are leaning that property. You bring property in based off of promises for somebody else. You make sure that your money is protected under that property and that you're not relying on the LLC agreement because the LLC agreement is going to say things like, hey, you know, we got to pay things back in a pro rata way, da 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 Like you don't want to, because you're, what you're essentially doing is giving them half. So just make sure that you have a lien against that property if you're putting it in the LLC. The other thing we see is the opposite, where somebody will fix up a house and the LLC was still in that uh, the outside individual's name and they go sell it and they don't give anything to the LLC. So yes, technically that's incorrect. They should not be doing that. They're violating the partnership agreement, but you still have to sue them to get your money back. So if I'm the person who has the property under contract and we're going to close in the name of the LLC and everybody's putting money into that LLC of equal, I'm not too worried about it. But if you put a bunch of money down, you said, hey, we're going to close in the LLC that somebody owns 50% of and they didn't put any money in, you are leaning that individually to make sure that you get paid back whatever you put in from that LLC if they ever, if you ever sell that property. And that way you can be protected. That's just the only way to protect yourself. But- See, and I, I often tell the person who is doing the funding to make sure they secure their loan or the money they contribute. But I had never really thought about the other side of the person contributing the property. 
Mm-hmm. I'm always worried because because I've seen so many deals blow up where somebody mm-hmm. says, "Hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that," and then you get the property. They say, "Hey, I'm working on it so hard." I mean, I've seen this so many times. And then you go out there, and all they've done is steal all your materials, and nothing's been done, and the place is a, a dung heap, and then they disappear. Yeah. And so now you're left with the property. Bring somebody else in to start fixing it up, and then when it right before it sells, here comes that the partner that absconded with all the materials who comes back in and says, Hey, I'm 50% and you owe me. And you just want to go nuts, right? You just want to attack that person, but it, that's, you know, you got to make sure that you're protecting yourself. The way partnerships work is if, if Jeff and I each come in and Jeff puts, I put in 50,000 and Jeff puts in 25,000, we have capital accounts. So in theory, when that when that partnership, let's say it makes two hundred thousand, it would pay Jeff back whatever he put in. Let's say it was twenty five. If I put in fifty, it put, gives me back my fifty, and then it splits the rest. So you got to make sure that you're never in a situation where you're at risk of losing yours. I've seen that so many times. I've seen it where partners that that did commit money, they get behind and they get underwater on things, and then they'll go and they'll borrow money, or a third partner will come in saying. Hey, I'll, I'll bring in some money. And they're all expecting like when it's going to be distributed out pro rata. Well, you were the one that put the money in the first place. And you're thinking, hey, wait a second, I need to get all my money back. And they're like, no, we're going to give it to this person and this person. And it gets really ugly quick. So make sure that you have somebody advising you on this so you don't get burned. Uh, how can I become anonymous in my LLC after the fact? I started my own LLC with my name all over it. One year later, I am interested in enhancing the corporate shield and getting my name off the record. Is that possible? I have worked hard to build the business credit with the existing entity and would like to continue. I don't have an answer for this one. So I do. If you have business credit, most business credit is going to be built inside of an entity that is not anonymous. It's going to be transparent to a certain extent. And that's because the bank needs to know that it's you and that not just you pretend, you know, representing, hey, I work for this company. They always, almost always want to uh, do a check. Otherwise, they are loaning directly to the entity, but they're really loaning to you and they're putting the entity's name on it. And it's really a personal guarantee on that. And it's a personal reporting. When you get true corporate credit, there's no personal reporting. It's not on your credit report anymore. If you have, uh, and this is different, by the way, you could have an obligation that is in the company's name and you can be a guarantor that's not reporting versus I could do a loan that's with me and the entity and it is reporting. So it's always, you got to be very, very clear with the party that you're dealing with. What do they report to? Of the, in the personal realm, 95% of the companies that do personal credit report to FICO and TransUnion and Equifax. On the business side, flip that around. Only about 5% of the companies report to Dun & Bradstreet or Equifax Direct or uh, TransUnion Business. So it's it's important to know those things as best you can going in. But once you start building up that business credit, it's great, but it does need to be transparent. So that kind of flies in the face of the idea of having anonymity. What I would suggest is that you create a separate entity to hold your capital or appreciate or some of your assets because yes, they could come after your business, but they can only get what's inside that business. So if you distribute it out to yourself, let's say it's an S-corp or an LLC tax as an S-corp, take your profits out on a monthly or quarterly basis on a regular basis and put them aside. Put them into an entity that does not have your name on it. That way, if it, if, if there's unwanted attention that, that, that comes your way and they, they come after your business, you're able to keep your personal 
assets out of it rather than having a million dollar account sitting in that business. There's nothing worse than when somebody comes after a business and they're alleging an amount that exceeds what that business have, but it's such a huge amount that you're like, oh, I'm worried about a fraudulent conveyance. I'm still going to tell you to take the money out and put it aside. If there's any business justification you can make, so if it's frivolous case, especially, but um, you know, most attorneys are like, freeze, don't do anything. They've made this big allegation. If there's teeth to it, then you can't. It's called a fraudulent conveyance. So I'd much rather you get it out of there before that ever occurs rather than after the fact. Once you're on notice, you have to be very, very, very careful. Anything else, Jeff? I know you didn't want to answer on that one. No, that was right on exactly what I wanted to say, Toby. Perfect. We love it. All right, you guys. There's <laughs> a written promise for 50, 35% profit, a part of a JV contract. No. <laughs> it sounds like one term of what something that should be in a contract. But if I have a 35% profit, you know what uh, I've seen a lot of is participating loan agreements. Hey, I don't want to do anything. I just want to loan you money and I want a chunk of the profit back. You could do that. And that's called a, uh, basically it's an, in, it, it's a regular loan for interest plus a conditional rider where there's contingent interest. So the rider is a contingency interest. So let's say that I loan Jeff money for 4%. And I say, you're going to give me 4%, but then I have a contingent interest that says if the profit and, I, you know, we look at the total profit and if 35% of that is greater than 4%, so 35% of the profit is greater than 4%, you pay me the, the extra and that, or you could do the 4% plus the 35, like you have infinite number of possibilities. And that's where you have people that are doing, uh, you know, side money and they're, they're really smart. That's a lot of the places they go. They're, they just they don't want to get involved. They just want to know that they have a loan that's getting a set interest rate no matter what. They want to have security on it. So they want to secure the real estate or whatever the assets are. And then they want to know if you hit a home run that they at least get a part of it. And so when you come at them and say, how about a 35% cut? You know, If it's one of my clients, they're probably saying, how about I loan you the money and personal guarantee and we're going to secure the house with it. And it's a really low interest rate. But if you knock it out of the, if, if what you're saying is right, yeah, you're giving me a 35% cut. So like, yes, that is one way to do it. And I love that. It's called a participating loan agreement. One of my favorite things on the planet. All right. In 2021, we sold my husband's dental practice. Congratulations. And we'll owe substantial capital gains. Is there any possible way or any way possible, any possible way to avoid these taxes through real estate investing or question mark? There is, and I'm going to give a particular scenario. You sold your husband's business, so I'm assuming he's retired, he's not working. So there is the possibility that one of you could qualify for real estate profession. Now, the only problem with this is we're in mid-September and the clock is ticking for you to make your hours to become a real estate professional. So we have to buy a lot of property, though, too. What's that? You'd have to buy a lot of property. You'd have to buy a lot of property. You'd have to do cost segregations to get the big write-off, which is why it's important that you qualify as a real estate professional. So, Jeff, with real estate professional, what you're really saying is, hey, I can take a huge amount of depreciation on real estate and write it off against my, my individual income and lower my tax threshold and offset some of that capital gain. Correct. That's probably a long-term capital gain, right? Uh, I would imagine if he's, if he's had the business for more than a year. 
So yes, it would be long-term capital gain. And, and that's kind of the other side of the coin is this long-term capital gain is probably being taxed, most definitely being taxed at a lower rate than your ordinary rate. So you're capped at 20% plus three and a half percent or 3.8% for net investment income tax plus your state capital gains rate. Right. So depending on where you're at, you could be looking at 23.8%. One fact I would want to know, and I don't know if these folks are out there, but uh, why not do an installment sale? Why didn't you secure it with something and then get it over a couple yeah. of years so that you can you know, lessen the tax bill? You know, Maybe there's an accountant saying, hey, Biden's going to raise the capital gains rate, so get it all now. You know, There could be that. The other side is there's something called a qualified opportunity zone. And in a qualified opportunity zone, you have 180 days from the sale or the date of recognition, which could be January 1st, technically it'd be the very end of the year, where you have to put, you you can put the capital gains or any portion of it into the opportunity zone fund and, and, and defer the tax until the very end of 2025 would be taxable on Dece- December 31st, 2025 and would be payable in 2026. So if you want to give yourself some time, you could invest it in something else. If you need the money, you can't do that, obviously. But uh, if you don't need the money, then you may want to look at a qualified opportunity zone. And you really do. You have 180 days from the date of sale, or I believe this one, because it's the sale of a dental practice, assuming that it's uh, it, that those assets, I believe that you should qualify to, to extend that to till 180 days from January 1st. If that's the case, you'd have until June, but uh, you need to have somebody really look at it. And then you have to put it in an opportunity zone fund and you have to buy opportunity zone property, which is great, but that's the only way we could defer it. If it's already closed, the the deal's already done. And, you know, so sometimes I'm looking at deferred sales trusts, which is way too late to do that. Sometimes we're looking at doing an installment sale where you carry back some of the note and you're getting paid over a longer period of time. So you're spreading it over multiple tax years or you just one, do one thing. I'm sorry. One thing I, I normally see with a sale of a professional practice is there's usually contingencies involved, contingency payments. They're paid based on how much revenue is collected in the further years. So this may be already an installment sale yeah. now. So if you sold it for a half million, but you're not getting the pay all the payments now. You're going to have an installment sale. You're not going to pay the tax on the entire gain in, in 2021. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it, it always depends on what you're selling too. A lot of times they said, "I sold my dental practice," but you're keeping the practice. And so Tom in here says, "Hey, why not? Why doesn't the dentist max out a defined benefit plan?" Usually, you have to have those for a number of years, but uh, also you have to have the active business. So it doesn't mean that you don't necessarily slap that on, you know, and say, hey, are we going to continue to operate this business? Maybe you're doing consulting. You really want to be careful when you do a purchase and sale on a, on a dental practice. Almost always there's a non-compete and a, uh, what do they call it? Uh, an agreement where you provide services. So you could have, mm, an, yeah. have an agreement. Those would be ordinary income, but they also get treated as they can be treated as well ordinary income. But if it, if they run through your company, then you could fund retirement plans. But now you have no employees, right? So now we could just be completely piggish and benefit ourselves. So especially if this is over a period of time, you could build something like that. You know, Toby, I actually had a client who did this exact same they, same thing. They sold their practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were paid over several years. They did do the DB choice. 
They were still doing work on the side. Jamming it on in there as long as it's ordinary income. Yep. So, you know, so the, the thing the accountants always try to run away from, like, oh, we don't want any ordinary income. Maybe we do. <laughs> Depends on how old you are, whether you're keeping the business, because quite often with the business, you're selling the assets. You know, what they want is your practice. They want your intellectual property. They want your goodwill. Goodwill is taxed as what? Uh, ordinary income? Or no, goodwill, sell goodwill's taxes, capital gain. So capital gains fifteen. It's it's fifteen years depreciation, right? It's just mm-hmm. something goofy. So um, and like they want they want your client list, your patient list, and that is actually capital gain. Mm-hmm. But they also usually want you because the patient list is typically not worth much without you continuing to practice. And so the IRS is really good about recognizing that and saying, "I want that to be ordinary income, even after the fact." So they'll come through and look at an agreement. It doesn't matter what's in your agreement. They're not bound by that. They could say, what's the reality? The reality is I need Jeff. And so Jeff has a consulting agreement. He has a non-compete with me and that's ordinary income. And he has all these things. The reason that I have Jeff here is so that his clients won't run off. Right. So um, anyway, there's so many little pieces to this. When you sell a business, you always want to have a really, really good tax advisor along for the ride. I like to tell my my horror stories, but I had a, a buddy of mine. He called me up on a Friday and he was about to do about a $6 million deal. And uh, he goes, hey, Toby, we're at the very finish line. We're about to sign things. And I said, hey, I want my buddy to look at it. I've not, you know, because he's been knowing me for a long time. And he says, hey, Toby, will you come in here and meet with the, the lawyers? I had a team from New York and a team from California on a conference call. Team from New York knew what they were doing. It was about to eat his lunch. He thought he could deduct the $6 million and he couldn't. So I just... First thing I said is I looked at him and I said, hey, so-and-so, I'm not going to tell you the name. I said, hey, this is like, you realize you can't write any of this off. And he goes, what? No, I can write it off. I go, no, you can't write it off. And the lawyers are like, well, we, we, didn't, obtain, we didn't obtain a tax uh, or CPA to advise on this. We said we're not experts. And all of a sudden, all hell broke loose because there was an assumption made that he's going to get a $6 million deduction. And so he was using that as part of his factoring in of what to pay for this thing. And, uh, you know, we managed to save the sale, uh, the sale doing like it was just the the L.A. firm got tossed just because they didn't know what they were doing. There was probably 10 things like that. And we ended up bringing in somebody else and ended up spending my whole weekend uh, babysitting the thing so it could still close. But it was uh, it, it was pretty interesting. Or somebody says amortization. Troy. Oh, deduct. Oh, I said depreciate. It's amortized. Yeah. Yeah, one of the first questions I usually ask as soon as somebody says they sold their business, I say, what did you sell and how did you go about it? That's really something you need to negotiate what exactly you're selling and how much each piece, the value of each piece that you're selling. And both you and the seller have to, or the buyer have to agree on this. And the problem is, is the tax treatment of each of these items. And they're not, they're not bound by it though. Yeah, but. And when, when you're your agreement and go, this is the real, this is the reality of this because mm-hmm. people play games. Hey, let's call it this. Cause there's usually one side that's in, has a huge tax appetite and the other side's probably just trying to get some money and get out. Give me a good example of that is, yeah, if I'm selling, I, I don't mind it being called goodwill because that's capital gain treatment for me. Mm-hmm. Well, for the buyer, it's horrible treatment because they have to amortize it over 15 years. Yep. Stock sales are great for the buyer, not so great for the seller. Or uh, they're great for the seller, not so great for the buyer. Uh, yeah. so Somebody says, those- hey, 
Is there, hold on for a quick second. There's no 1031s for businesses or business assets that went away 2017. Yep. And uh, could the purchase payments be equal to the dentist's salary and then the dentist max out the DB? Yeah. It's up to you. What, what you, you probably don't want the purchase. You want ordinary income. So you want the non-compete and the, and the, uh, the consulting salary because they, they usually keep them on to do the glad handing to bring the clients over. But yeah, you could have that be 300000 if the DB plan would allow it to go in there. You guys get to negotiate that and then sell the personal properties separately. You got a little problem with the personal property. I think they're meaning business property. So the personal business, the 1245 property, mm-hmm. if that's the case, let me think about that. If I'm selling that, that's still, I've depreciated it all. If it has any useful life, right? That's all ordinary income or would that be a capital? Trying to think. If it's beyond its useful life, I believe it's capital gain treatment. Mm-hmm. So, so you could do that, but you're already you're already there. You're already getting the most of that at the twenty three point eight. If it still has useful life, so like, hey, I had a bunch of furniture and I wrote it off in year one, and then I sold it in year two. I'm having to recapture as personal as ordinary income four fifths of that property. Uh, when you have longer property, it could even or you know things with longer useful lives, it could even be a bigger trouble. Let's see. Sorry, did you have anything else on that one you want to go over? No, sir. When do I switch from wholesaling under my name to wholesaling as a corporation? Uh, I prefer sooner than later, to be honest with you. Yeah, go uh, back in time. <laughs> do not wholesale in your own name, because when you get sued in your own name, it sucks. Just figure it's going to cost you two hundred grand to go to trial, and they know it. And if you're having any success, they're just licking their chops at you. So please do not wholesale under your personal name. If you can, like, unless you really don't have anything, you don't expect you're going to have anything for the, for the next 10 years. Otherwise, just wholesale underneath an LLC, taxed as a corporation, LLC taxed as an S-corp. Just don't do it in your own name, please. Because you'll be really ticked off when you start hitting some home runs and somebody comes along and, and just and starts making things like, hey, you... You misrepresented to me. You took advantage of me. And you're like, you completely saved their katush. You took over, fixed a house, made it usable again. And then somebody sees that you made some money and they they just get jealous. You just want to be able to knock that thing out. Sorry, Jeff. Was there anything else you wanted on that one? Nope. This is fun. Uh, hey, follow us on social media. We got a whole bunch of them. Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter. My favorite is the YouTube channel. I always talk about that. We're probably going to start broadcasting these on YouTube uh, live and then also on Facebook live so that we can get more and more people some better information. Yes, we are a, if we were a barbershop, we always say we want you to have really lush, long locks. We want you to have long hair that grows really, really fast because we're barbers and we want to. So if we can help you make money, we hope that you allow us to cut your hair which means doing tax service. All right. How do, how, how do I then get credit approvals under the business entity? You, you kind of already answered this, Toby, because it was the exact thing I thought of. You're going to need personal guarantees to get business credit. If you want a loan for your business entity, yeah, they're going to give it to you uh, if everything looks right to them, but they're also going to want you to sign on as a guarantor. Let me say this. Uh, if you're halfway listening right now, uh, listen up, because this is actually really important. If you understand the world of business credit, you're going to realize that there's three things they're always looking for, cash, collateral, or credibility. 
So they either want to see that you have the cash sitting in your account, you have a history that that's great, you know, but cash works. Like if I have 50 grand, they'll probably give me a line of credit if I put that into a CD and I can secure it for a while until they're happy enough with my performance that they release. It. I used to do that. I've done that twice now, right? Just threw some money in instead of funding the entity with cash and using that, I funded the entity with cash and used it as security for a line of credit so that the business could get some history. And then they released the cash collateral requirement. Took takes about two years. Collateral is anything. I could use my house as collateral. I could use a car as collateral. I could use anything as collateral. And the business, they'll give credit to the business and allow that to take place if I'll give the collateral. And then there's credibility, which is they want to see two-year history and they want to see a Paydex score or the Experian Direct score, and they're going to give you a certain threshold. Like the Paydex score is way different than a personal credit score. Paydex is a zero to hundred, and it shows how, how how on time you pay things. So it's best just to ask them what they're going to be looking for, and then going in and making sure that you meet the requirements. Now, just like a teenager, teenager comes up again, uh, and they want to get a, a car, right? So you have a 18 year old that says, Hey dad, I want you to help me get a car. Again, the, the, the lenders are going to look at cash collateral or credibility. They're going to pull the credit score. They're going to see there's not enough credibility there. They, they haven't been around long enough, enough work history. So they go to the next, is there any cash to secure it with? And then they go, do you have any collateral? And then they're going to say to the teenager, Hey, you don't meet any of the criteria. Do you know anybody who does? So then dad shows up and, and lays down their credibility. They co-sign on the loan. It's still in the individual. It's still in the teenager's name, but you're a guarantor on it. And that's exactly what they do with the business. If it's a, if it's a new business, it's less than two years old uh, or even it has no history. So I'd say two years with of credit history, they're almost definitely going to ask for the credibility of the parent, which is you, one of the principals. Once you get used to that, it's really easy to build business credit. Like I go get an American Express tomorrow that doesn't report to my my personal name. I don't think any of them do unless it's a personal. So all my business, like I got tons of business credit cards, not a big credit fan. Like personally, I don't like credit in my name, but I don't mind it with the business. It's just, you know, they used me to get the, to get through the, through the door. And then eventually they weaned us off. Like uh, the American Express is, they don't have a personal guarantee on it anymore. They just look at our financials once a year. Now, so all see, that stuff will work. Do you see that with the, our, our friend, the BRRRR strategy? Does it get easier as you do each yeah. sheet? Yeah. So when you're talking about the, the, the build, rent, refinance, repeat, or the uh, buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat, those those two strategies. The refi part, you don't want that all in your name, but you know, so you, personally you can have about 10 loans before the, you're, you're banned from doing anymore, but usually you're going to about four and then you're doing par- portfolio lenders. So there's people that alone because they know that you're improving the value of a property. And uh, the money's not always the most, the cheapest. It might be five and a half percent as opposed to three and a half percent. But when you're doing commercial and getting it out of your personal name, it doesn't affect your personal credit, that's worth it. And especially if you go above 10 properties, when you go to about 100 properties, it's like you're in that secondary world of where they, they're probably going to do you in tranches of three and a half, four million bucks, and they're going to want 60% you know, like 60% debt versus 40% equity. And they're going to be looking at the after repair value in some cases. 
So that, you know, and the more they get to know you, then eventually they're going to be like, Hey, we don't need you on these things anymore. So like a lot of my portfolio loans, it's secured. It's, it, it, it's a dual entity where they'll do a loan to the entity holding the real estate. And it's secured by the entity holding the entity that owns the real estate. Cause they don't want to foreclose on all the properties. They just want to take the business if it goes, goes South. And that's usually a portfolio loan, you know, at least 5 million and above. And those, they're, they're not hor- horrifically hard to get. We have great people. If you're part of our funding community, you probably already dealt with a bunch of this stuff, but we have a bunch of really good lenders that we work with. And a lot of them are the non-personal type. Like they're going, they want portfolios. All right, that was enough of that. Is it more advantageous from a tax saving standpoint to make charitable contributions directly from our corporation or to pay ourselves and then make the donation from our personal account? What say you, Jeff? This is really a depends question, and we haven't said that in a while. Mm-hmm. And the reason it depends is for a corporation, a cash contribution is limited to 25% of that corporation's net income. Uh, in 2022, it's scheduled to go back to 10% of that corporation's net income. Whereas this year, the 100% is still in effect, I believe, for 2020. 100% cash. 100% cash to charity. So you have that to look at. Can you take advantage of that full contribution of the corporation? But you also have to look at, can you take advantage of that on your 1040? Are you able to itemize? Are you in a lower tax bracket than the corporation is? The corporation is in the 21%. You may only be in, say, a 12% bracket personally. So generally, I would say it's better to make it personally, but as, that is definitely not a black and white response. You, you really have to look at both sides and see where it's going to come out best. Yeah, we kind of have to see where you're at from a tax standpoint, because a corporation, a C-corp, can give up to 25% of its net tax or net income, mm-hmm. but it's capped at 21%. So you're getting 21% on, you know, let's say you had a hundred thousand, you gave $25,000 away. You're going to get, you're going to save one quarter of 21,000, right? Whatever that is. I should add that up. That's 11,500 and one half of that. So 7,650 or whatever it is. I don't even know. You can't do math on the spot, right? Yeah. So there's not a huge amount of benefit. Whereas if you gave that, you say it was $25,000 in Jeff's account, he's at 37% plus state, that's a much larger amount. So he'd be, you know, it's better off if it's Jeff making the contribution, but the keep this, Jeff has to pay tax. So if, the, if it's sitting and there's $100,000 sitting in a C-Corp and you're going to keep it there, you may as well go $25,000 to charity. Like, hey, I don't care. It's the corporation writing it off and you're benefiting a charity. That's great. Maybe it's your own 501c3. That's great too. But if I pay Jeff $100,000, Jeff is now paying tax on that hundred thousand, if Jeff gives twenty five thousand, there's no way he's like it, it's. It would have been much more beneficial just to give it out of the corp. But if it's an S corp, S corporation, if it makes a charitable donation, they don't consider the S corp making the charitable donation. They're considering that the shareholders made the charitable donation at their level on their percentage of whatever was given. So if I gave twenty five thousand dollars out of an S corp, that made a hundred and I'm 50% owner, the way the IRS looks at it is great. You made a hundred grand and then you made a $12,500 donation for each party, for each partner. So you're going to get 50,000 and 12,500 as a donation. So it's going to lower you to 37,500 is really what your net profit's going to be for each partner. So it's kind of weird. Same thing with the partnership. 
Same thing if it's a sole proprietorship. There's no difference between you and it. If it's a partnership, the partnership didn't make the contribution as far as the IRS is concerned. The individual partners did. Did I say that right? Yeah. And this, the answer to this question, it's not a this or that. It could be this and that. Yeah. Uh, you may max out your corporate contribution, then pay out the rest directly to the, the shareholder who then makes another contribution in his own personal name. What you don't do is give a charitable contribution and then pay out a whole bunch of money and ruin your profit so you can't write it off. You get to carry it forward for like five years, but still that sucks. Me personally, I'm going to tell people, I think it's better for you to make the contributions nine times out of 10, because it's going to get you over that standard deduction. And I don't want to, I don't want to have a $10,000 deduction individually that I couldn't write off and a $10,000 deduction charitable donation that came out of a corporation that I can't write off. Right. I would have been better off to just do one or the other. Like, hey, it probably been better to, for me to give 20,000. Then I would have gotten to at least had some bit to write off, assuming I, I, I defeated the standard deduction. One other thing I rec- usually recommend to clients is uh, in that case, especially where the standard deduction is coming into play, is they front load their contributions. Uh, say I normally contribute $5,000 to my church every year. Go ahead and do that bigger contribution up front. Let the church or whatever the charity is know that you're doing that. And they may not be seen as much over the next few years, but that allows you to get a little more bang out of the buck of that contribution. Yeah, get chunky with your donations. Give three mm-hmm. years in one year. Like instead of doing once a year, like what Jeff just said is absolutely true. Why not make a five-year Bequeathment. Now, if you're worried about that, but you want to still get the deduction, you can do a donor advised fund so long as it allows transfer to your church. Some do, some don't. So you could always put a big donation into a donor advised fund and then parcel it out. Hey, I need the deduction this year. Let's see. Whoops. Hey, Tax and Asset Protection Live. Who would have thunk it? September 18th. Come on out, spend the day with us. I know I mentioned this earlier, so I'm not going to belabor the point, but it's fun. And you're going to learn a lot about LLCs, corporations, land trusts, living trusts, 401ks, C-Corps, S-Corps, series LLCs, which states let you do them, which ones don't, when's an appropriate time, Wyoming statutory trusts, we get involved. It's like if you're in California, you don't want to pay franchise tax and everything, we could show you how to defeat that. Uh, register, aba.link forward slash tap. And uh yeah, it's a virtual event. So you're going to see Clint's and my smiling mug all day until four o'clock. Can I do a 1031 exchange when I sell an investment home that I never lived in nor rented out? Is there any way to avoid capital gains tax other than renting it out? I don't want to keep the house. Before 2018, you could have done a 1031 on this property. Uh, the new rules say rental property or investment property. But when you dig down, down into what investment property is, it's a property that's making money for you. So if you've never lived in it and never rented it out, I don't think you're going to be able to do a 1031 exchange on this property. Yeah. There's one exception where there was a, where there was a case that was post, if I remember right, the facts were that some parents had purchased a house. They intended to have it as a family house. Their child would, uh, ended up passing away unexpectedly. So they would never go near the house. The mom said, sell it, get it out of here because it was such an emotionally charged issue. And they tried to rent it. They could not rent it out. 
they tried and tried and tried. They had some people look at it, but the market was just too soft. It was in a really nice area that was more of a vacation area. Mm-hmm. And it was a, I think it was a new built. So they just, nobody would give them any, you know, what they, uh, what they, what they needed to get on the, uh, on that side. And then they put it for sale. And uh, so they could not rent it out, but they could sell it and they sold it. And they said the IRS allowed them to treat it as an investment property because they listed it at fair market value. They made a good faith effort to rent it. And so it was in service. That's the only time I've ever seen that. So I would say technically there's not a requirement, but realistically, like if you don't want to have to defend it, rent it out. And then uh, even if it's renting it out to a brother or sister or somebody else, somebody that you know that's going to be gentle on it, that's still fine. Just rent it out probably for six months. I think the safe harbor is two years, but but uh, if you, as long as you make it into an investment property, you're going to be fine. But you must have like, how did you get a bunch of gain in it? <laughs> I, haven't, I never lived in it or I never rented it out, but it's gone up in value a whole bunch. And now I just want to sell it. <laughs> Well, there's another tax-free way to get money out of that. It's called doing a cash-out refi and keeping the house and putting it for rent and just using that equity to to borrow from. Anyway, let's see. How are we doing on time? Am I over already? Oh, I am. Sorry. My fault. Last one. I keep asking you questions. Uh, Who handles the paperwork for a 1031 exchange? The lawyer, the realtor, or my tax advisor? How far in advance do I have to plan to undertake an exchange? It's actually the candlestick maker. No, yes. uh, I thought the exact same thing. You know how weird that is. Uh, so it, it's actually think of this as a normal sale, but you have somebody representing you called the qualified intermediary. So you're still going to have that title person who's dealing with that portion of the pa- paperwork. You're still going to have the realtor and all those other people. But the purpose of a qualified intermediary is to keep you out of trouble during this 1031 exchange. Uh, when you sell your property, they get the funds, not you. They hold the funds until you replace your property. And then they represent you in that purchase and that they put that money back in for you. So there will be some paperwork done by the QI, the qualified intermediary. A lot of it's going to be the standard paperwork that the title company does. You should find a, if you're planning on doing a 1031, you need to do that before you put your property up for sale. You need to talk to them about what you want to do, what the plans are. They're going to help you with your important dates, like 45 days to identify a replacement property, 180 days to actually replace your property and so forth. And shop around a little. I I haven't heard of many bad QIs, but uh, you, you do want to get the best deal. They're not necessarily that expensive. I've seen them $500. What have you seen? Uh, I've seen all over the place, 800 to 3000 I like Shauna. I have a uh, Shauna Ronrell up in Idaho. She's not everywhere, but she's just a really great gal who knows her stuff. And like, uh, you know, we have some clients that actually do exchanges in C-Corps and some bizarre things uh, just because they don't want any money. It, it's some really high, high net worth folks. And she's able to handle those without batting an eye. So whereas most 1031 exchange facilitators would melt down. I care more about not having to worry about it than necessarily the price. So I always look at their expertise. It's kind of that value thing. I'm like, I just want somebody really good so I can sleep. 
sleep at night if I'm going to do it. Yeah. And the more you get into some of the 1031 offshoots, like multiple properties you're replacing with and things like that, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think it gets more and more important for that to have that good QI in place before you even start the process. Yeah. Your QI is your, your best friend. You could do reverse exchanges. Like sometimes when you get into commercial, you're, they're already doing the math. They're like, man, I just don't have enough time to do this. You can acquire a property and then uh, replace it if you have the credit and the cash to, to do it. As long as you don't take the pro- possession of the new property, as long as the QI is doing it, that's great. You don't actually have to, uh, you don't violate anything. You can you could, you could buy the replacement property and then exchange the old properties into it. It's great. You could do that, or you can be, you can already have identified your properties that you're going to exchange for and coordinate the closing date so that you have, uh, you're not, you're not sweating bullets, you know, hoping that you can find something and close on it in time. And then lastly, uh, somebody on this call, actually, I believe, uh, I'm not going to say the name, but you can uh, park it in a, uh, in a uh, tenants in common in a tick in certain larger organizations. So like if you're selling a larger commercial property. I've seen that done on more than once, but I, I remember going through one with uh, with an individual where the attorneys really knew their stuff, but they were parking it in a in a tenant common with other high net worth folks in a building where they knew that they would be able to exchange that into something else in a portfolio. And then there's Delaware statutory trust that you could park it in as well. Like there's, if you have a good QI they will help you troubleshoot issues that would normally tank a 1031 exchange. Uh, you mentioned reverse 1031s. And the reason I like those is I've seen a couple 1031s blown recently because they couldn't find replacement property. Yeah. Or they drag their feet. I've seen that where they'll actually find a way to slow down, to stop it. Like you were getting to the last few days and then they start negotiating with you again. Because they know that you're about to lose your exchange and you're going to have to pay tax. And so, hey, you're going to get hit with a tax. Let's say you're in California or something. You're going to get slapped hard. You're going to be over 30% tax bill. And they know it. Uh, qualified opportunity zones enable you to avoid some of that in, in certain situations. But you're still going to be paying that tax pretty soon, like in the next few years, no matter what. So they'll all of a sudden start like, hey, we need uh, this and this and this. And they'll start asking for additional things just because they're unscrupulous and they know they got you over a barrel. So you don't want to do that. Is there any reason to let the seller know you're in a 1031 exchange? I would advise against it. Sometimes the agents do because they're like, hey, we're exchanging. If you're finding replacement properties with a good person in a good organization, it won't hurt you to say I'm in a 1031 exchange because what you're trying to do is find replacement partner uh, party uh, properties that you know are going to meet a certain criteria and that are going to close in time. And there's nothing wrong like like uh, I we work with Alpine a lot. Hey, I need I need to put a million dollars into properties. Great. And what if I want to sell those properties later? We'll buy them back from you, or we'll bring another investor in. Perfect. So they already know that they have an out. And so they're going to spread out that. And then they may be looking and saying, hey, rather than rush, I know I have a bunch of properties. I have 45 days to identify. Find me a portfolio. They're wholesaling all day long. They just, what about this one? What about this one? What about this one? And they can make a they can make a list up to 200% of the value of your sale. So uh, you could do it. What else? Oh, Sherry, Alpine's cool. I get mad at Aaron just like anybody else. I get mad at Clint sometimes. He's been my partner for 20 some years. No, Alpine's actually uh, doing an excellent job. We work with them on the infinity side. What I, what I look at is results. All I care about is, are they getting people good cash flow properties or people making money? 
And uh, if the answer is yes, then I like them. If the answer is no, then I, I, I then I give them a hard time until until I like them. And yeah, they said he does. So he can always say that. Uh, Aaron's a good dude. Like the more I get to know him, the more I appreciate where he's coming from, his heart. At the end of the day, it's not about the money, at least not for me. And somebody says, yeah, he's a smart guy. He is a very smart guy. We introduced him to Don. So you can't like, we said, hey, Don, you should talk to him. We're always looking for good, uh, good properties, good deals. And then, and they, they really do that. Uh, he's not here this time. Oh, he should be. Don. All right. I think that's it. Let me see. Are there any oh, other? One more. Oh, there's one more. No, I think that's it. Was there another one? I thought there was. Let me see. I'm going to look and see if I missed one. What was the one I missed? Do you remember? About the income coming out of partnership and wanting to allocate it to the wife when the partner. Oh, there was that one. And then there was the dependent versus. Uh... Yes. Let me see if I screwed up something here. Oh, maybe I did. Sometimes I screw up. So we're going to go back up to the top. Oh, that's the one I missed. So we'll go a Florida LLC with members consisting of my wife and three of my children made a profit of 65,000. My wife does not have any taxable income. Would the profit be protected from tax if it was paid out in full to my wife? What say you, Jeff? So first off, I'm going to start with the LLC agreement determines how income is allocated to its members. It can be adjusted. You just have to do an addendum to the agreement, changing the allocation. But the one thing I kind of noted is, say if you're 40% owner and she's 40% owner, there's really no advantage that I can think of of allocating that income to her. If they're filing a joint return, it won't matter. They're filing a joint return. And if you're thinking about filing a married filing separate return, there's disadvantages to that. Yeah, so they're adding up your income and your wife's, but right. your three children, if they made money on this and it's ordinary income, like they're they're materially participating and they're not passive, if it's passive, chances are it's getting allocated back to you anyway. If they would, are actually doing something for this money, my goodness, let them pay tax on it because they so each have a standard deduction of 12000 what is it, $12,550 this year? That's where I was just going to go. I would prefer my children to have 50% profit interest in this because they're going to have income of what just short of $10,000 each or just over $10,000 each. And they're not going to pay a dime of tax on that. Zero. They might have a little self-employment tax if they uh, worked hard on it. So like if, if this is a flip, usually if I'm doing a LLC and doing a flip, I'm going to make it an S corp. And then I would pay everybody. You're going to have a little bit of a, uh, uh, employment tax, but they're not going to pay any tax on whatever they get paid. Any of the money that comes out to them, they probably won't mm-hmm. pay much of anything on tax and they could fund a Roth. Each one of those kids could end up being like, I, I remember doing the numbers. Uh, if you give somebody 50 years untaxed growth, they're going to be probably over 700 grand. I think it was at 10,000 at 7% over that long stretch. I've, I've seen the numbers. It's just a huge amount of money. So you just set up their whole a great retirement for those kids if you do it now. But when I see wife's not making anything, well, it's your wife. Are you married? If you're married, are you filing jointly? Because what she makes, to, you know, would just get added into yours. What is more beneficial to claim or employ dependents? What are the requirements for employing dependents? Oh, uh, one typically has nothing to do with the other. You're always going to claim your dependents, any children, any dependent that you're providing more than half the support 
the only interplay between these two would be if you're providing so much, you're employing them and paying them so much in W-2 that they're able to support themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's not an either or question. You can uh, employ your dependents and still claim them. Uh, I'm thinking primarily for children, but there's also other dependents too that would work. And you have a massive tax credit right now coming out. If they're under what, if they're five and under, it's 3,600. If it's, It's uh, $3,600 a year. If it's 2000 a year, if it's 17 to six. Yep. And so if they're your beneficiary, great. But also then you can pay them. <laughs> it's the same rules. It's $12,550 that they can make tax-free. So do both. Right. Because the, uh, the tax credit isn't dependent on anything other than your income. Like you got to make sure you don't phase out for it, but Mm -hmm. it's a tax credit. That mean, tax credits are worth their weight in tax dollars. It's not a deduction. It's a tax credit. Like it's dollar for dollars. It's like taking your bill and lowering it. And when we talk about uh, claiming dependents and uh, their support, we're talking housing, education, feeding them, everything that they could possibly you spend on these children or that they use or dependent uh, like a child, like a brother, sister that you're taking care of or mother, if you're providing more than half their um, support and they, they make below, what is it? 16 grand. Then uh, you get to claim them as a dependent. Yeah. I think it's actually much less than that. Uh, I want to say it's under $4,000. I think yes, it's something good. Yeah. You think you're right. What are the but requirements for employing dependents? they actually have to be doing something for the business mm-hmm. that you're employing them in. You can't just say, oh, my child is my employee, even though he, this child has never done anything. All right. Let's get these guys gone because I've gone over again. <laughs> and here I was thinking like, ah, I hope we can fill up the hour, which has never happened. We've never not like, that's the sad part. I don't think we've ever finished early. And then uh, someone says, never. Sherry, you're hurting me right here. Uh, subscribe to Anderson on our YouTube channel. We're always putting stuff out. We love it. We're going to end up doing these on the YouTube live because we want to just get more and more people that we can help. We don't care whether they give us an email address anymore. The way I look at it is just share and help. Make life easy for yourself. Go to our podcast, Anderson Advisor Podcast. You can take a look at all the stuff that we put out there. We put the Tax Tuesdays out as podcast too. So I know a lot of you guys listen to it because you're weird and you like tax stuff. No, because you're going to hear a question that's relevant to you. And then our replays are always in your platinum portal for our platinum members. If you're not platinum and you don't want to know more about it, just reach out to us and we'll explain it to you. Unlimited Q&A with our attorneys, uh, unlimited written Q&A from our accountants. It's 35 bucks a month. There's a sign-up fee that oftentimes is included in packages that we do. So come to the tax and AP. We always do something special for those, but you'll realize it's just peppercorn. Uh, 35 bucks a month is cheap. Talk to a lawyer, have them review contracts and things like that. So you're not going to get a bill. Thank you, Elliot, Dana, and Troy. You guys kicked butt. Like we were we were keeping up with all the cues like they they blew them all out of the water. So in the middle of tax season, the fact that they still have mental acumen, the ability to answer, unless it was all smiley faces, frown, maybe maybe an emoji or two. If, unless all their answers were emojis, I'm going to say these guys absolutely killed it because I was watching them typing away. You guys can't see 
we don't have sharing with the chat just so you guys it's always somebody who solicits hey i got a great business opportunity we don't want that going on in our chat rooms so i can see these guys answering the written questions and uh there's troy smiley face brownie yep so as long as they're able to still write and they're answering things coherent then uh then that's great but otherwise thank you for joining us for tax tuesday jeff Thank you for being a rock star and joining us the day before a tax deadline. And uh, appreciate Troy, Elliot, Dana, Patty on there and Ander who does the tech. So thank you guys. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode.